I love Jared Allen. Fear the no. frog. Pow! With the right hand. That's our boy Bob Schmidt. <laughs> Jared Allen with authority. This is the Fear the Fro podcast, a Cleveland Cavaliers and NBA podcast with Bob Schmidt. Nobody's going to subscribe. Welcome. Happy Thanksgiving from the Fear the Fro podcast. A lot to be thankful for. Not on that list. NBA officials who completely fucked the Cavs last night. I thought if I sat on it, I thought if I sat on it overnight that I would come in calmer. It's a holiday. I don't have to go into work today, but I did want to do a podcast because, well, there's plenty of people who are just watching football and not even with their families at this point. And I had shit to say specifically about how the Cavaliers lost a brutal game last night. Now, I thought the first Phoenix loss was tough this year where DeAndre Ayton just went beast mode in the second quarter and took what was a Cavalier lead and turned it into a Phoenix blowout by the second half. But this game, much like the last few games, it is a frustrating stretch. It's both frustrating and inspiring in the sense that the Cavaliers have now lost five games in a row. They lost to the Celtics on the second half of a back-to-back. Then they lost a close game to the Nets where they literally had nobody healthy. They lost to the Warriors behind an insane fourth quarter from Steph Curry where he scored 20 points himself and the Cavaliers were limited to just eight points in the fourth quarter. They lost to the Nets in a game where there was some questionable calls, specifically Rubio getting an offensive foul while trying to go straight up for a shot, but Patty Mills got up under him, got the whistle, then turned around, hit a three, swung the momentum, effectively hammered a nail into the Cavs. That's what it felt like in the moment anyway. But they clawed and they fought in all those games. Not so much in the Warriors game in the fourth quarter. It kind of fell apart there. But that was more of a game where they looked fantastic all the way until the end of the third quarter. Double-digit lead, and then they managed to just have one of the worst quarters I've ever seen offensively from a team to lose that game to the Warriors. So here we sit now where the Cavaliers have been on the wrong end of five straight losses, despite those of us who watched the game probably feeling like those were games that they were absolutely in. They were absolutely winnable. That Nets game, winnable. That Warriors game was winnable until they lost momentum in the fourth quarter and just completely collapsed. This most recent Nets game eh, felt a little bit like they kind of got robbed of an opportunity to win at the end with some horrible whistles. Ricky Rubio, he does not have the respect of officials. It is unfortunate, but between that call and that Nets game where he got called for a unnatural basketball motion in trying to go up for that three-point shot to yesterday where tied up Jay Crowder, got called for a foul after Crowder pretended he got poked in the eye when the replay showed clearly, no, just a tie-up, but didn't go the Cavs' way. Took a knee right in the chest from JaVale McGee. Nothing. No call there. Darius Garland, phantom whistles. The take foul was absolutely egregious. JaVale McGee gets a tech that effectively waves off an Osman three, and this is shortly after they waved off a Darius Garland three, saying that he wasn't in the act of shooting when Chris Paul fouled the screener when he absolutely was. So that was six points they left on the board right there. They lost the game by five. Does it mean they would have won? Not necessarily, but the refs were atrocious, completely one-sided. In this game to a point where these are games. I mean, on one hand, 
I feel good because despite the Cavs now being outside of the play-in window, the 11th seed after losing five straight, they're now 9-10. and 10, But these were all winnable games against the teams that sit at the top of the East and West. The Brooklyn Nets now 14-5. and five. The first seed in the East, the Golden State Warriors, 16-2. and two. The Phoenix Suns, 15-3, and three, riding a 14-game winning streak. And that game was in the Cavs' clutches until the officials effectively, well, wrestled it away from them. And that's, I shouldn't say that it, it's just the officials. But certainly, do I think the Cavs win if they get even a remotely fair whistle? Absolutely. Because despite all of the excellent play we saw from some of the Suns players, Devin Booker went 14 for 21 yesterday, shot 67% from the floor, 35 points he chipped in. That, along with Ayton, 16 points on 67% from the floor. Mikhail Bridges chipped in double digits. He was 5 for 8. It was a relatively efficient performance, except for that giant walking turd, Jay Crowder, who missed every three-point attempt. Something that we're all too familiar with if we watched him in Cleveland. It's basically like as soon as he came into Cleveland, he reverted into Cleveland Jay Crowder, who sucked. I mean, Phoenix Jay Crowder sucks as well, but at least he's on a team that's winning. Whereas in Jay Crowder in Cleveland, pretty much worthless to the point where we dumped him by trade deadline because a massively overrated player who people talk about being a, you know, a seasoned vet who can do the little things, which means he can't do any of the big things. So let's stop throwing Jay Crowder a parade. Jay Crowder, P.J. Tucker, all these guys. It's like you're good when you're on winning teams. But you know why people think Jay Crowder's good? Devin Booker, Chris Paul, DeAndre Ayton, all guys who can take the attention away from him. So he just has to hit a three every so often. But historically speaking, Jay Crowder absolutely blows. And we give him a pass for the fact that his percentages are abysmal year after year, hovering around 40% from the field. He's, I mean, his career field goal percentage is less than 42%. His career three-point percentage is less than 35%. And you would think that he's some sort of 3 and D specialist. He's six fouls on whatever the best player on the other team is and a bunch of missed three-pointers. But he chucks them up at such a high volume, averaging something like five to six three-point attempts a game over the last several years, that yeah, he'll make one or two, and then he'll miss five or six. So if that's the guy that you want to build your team around, so be it. But I'm not thankful for Jay Crowder. He's, he's definitely in my top five of most hated NBA players. But I have uh, turned what is a day of thanks, a day to be grateful for the things you have into, in your life, into this uh, bitter monologue about uh, how the Cavs got totally screwed on a holiday where we should all be thankful. The only thing I'm thankful for is that I don't have to watch those refs again. I'm thankful that I am not their child at a Thanksgiving dinner table with them because I would be ashamed of my father and or mother. I don't know. Was there a female official? Wasn't really paying attention. All I saw was incompetence. So anyway, state of the Cavs. As it sits right now, they're slightly under 500. But we are at least getting through the worst part of the schedule. The next games that we have on the schedule are are more winnable games. Saturday should be an automatic victory, especially if Cole Anthony's not playing. A shorthanded Magic team against these Cleveland Cavaliers, that should bring us back to 500. And then, a relatively tough stretch where they play the Mavericks, probably the easiest games of the ones that I'm about to list. The Heat, the Wizards, the Jazz, the Bucks, and then the Bulls. So, a very difficult six games on the horizon. Six or seven games. 
Uh, I'm not counting the magic in the six games that are difficult. But over the next seven games, you have six teams that are all in the upper portion of the standings in their respective conferences. Milwaukee, 11 and 8. Chicago, 12 and 7. Washington, 11 and 7. Miami, 12 and 7. And then on the other side, Utah, 12 and 6. And the Mavericks, 10 and 7. The three and four seeds in the West. So the Cavs' schedule does not get any easier anytime sooner, but at least they face the elite of the elite squads already. Unfortunately, came away winless in that stretch, but a lot of things to feel very positively about. Let's begin with the things that I'm thankful for. I am thankful that Jared Allen is back on the floor because while these games have not turned into victories, over the last several games, Jared Allen has been an absolute monster. The last two games specifically. In Brooklyn, he went for 20 and 15. Against Phoenix, he went for 25 and 11. And we're starting to see just how valuable Jared Allen is with or without Evan Mobley. He truly opens things up for Mobley in a way that when Mobley's back, which reports are saying could be sooner rather than later, it has to make you feel great about the front court of this Cavaliers team for years to come. In addition to that, Darius Garland has been on a tear. Not just numerically speaking, because his numbers are good, but he's taken an insanely high volume of shots lately. His efficiency numbers, not fantastic. Over the last four games where he has taken, well, over 20 shots a game. Now, last night, he finished with 19 shots. But before that, he took an insane volume of field goal attempts over the last three games when we took on Brooklyn, Golden State, and then Brooklyn again. 26 attempts. Versus the Nets the first game. 27 attempts in the second game versus the Nets. 22 versus the Warriors. And then last night, shot a reasonably decent 42% from the floor. Went 8 of 19. Chipped in 19 points. 7 assists. Unfortunately, that came with 6 personal fouls. Two of which were completely bogus. Now that last foul, it was stupid. He got too close. Chris Paul just came up through his arms. There was no choice but to blow that whistle. But... And the fifth foul in transition, I didn't think it was necessary. However, in the first half, he had two fouls called on him where he made zero contact with the guy. The Jay Crowder foul, where they showed the replay and they tried to insinuate that he stepped under Jay Crowder's foot, their feet didn't even touch. It was like watching a guy describe a video who was blind. We all had the visual evidence right in front of us. That was not what happened, but because they were pot committed at that point to the replay, I guess they felt they needed to tell us that Darius Garland stepped under Jay Crowder when everyone in the world watching that could see that that's not what happened. But Darius Garland, over the last several games, the one area that he could stand to improve, he looks confident. His handle looks incredible. His pick and roll game, now, while he's not been efficient, don't kid yourself. What he's doing, what Ricky O'Ruby's doing, Ricky O'Rubio, Ricky... I'm I'm Moses Moody in this moment right now. What Ricky Rubio and Darius Garland are doing... It's what's opening things up for Jared Allen. All these big games he's having, this extremely efficient showing we were seeing from him last night, the 7 of 7, that's because Aiton kept deciding that he had to hedge on Garland when he'd come over the pick and rolls, and they would, that would leave Jared Allen alone to get rebound dunks, to get easy alley-oop dunks, to get clean looks at the rim that he could put in without even being contested. So... Jared Allen is definitely benefiting from Darius Garland, regardless of the fact that Garland, he's been fairly inefficient shooting-wise. Now, on the season, he's still 
doing very well. He's shooting 45% from the floor, 35% from three. That's where the dramatic fall-off has kind of happened over the course of the last several games. 0 for 6 last night from three-point land. 2 for 10 the game before that. 3 for 13 in his first game against the Nets. Now, those are all hovering around 0 to 20%. You got to push closer to 40. But in the earlier part of the month, he had some excellent games from outside. He shot 5 of 6. He shot 4 of 5. He shot, you know, two or three. Now, those are kind of low-volume situations. With Sexton out of the lineup for a long period of time, we've got two guards who are going to be carrying a much higher volume of shots than they have in the past. And Darius Garland should be. Ricky Rubio, we, we've seen enough to know that he's not going to be a high-percentage field goal shooter. Unfortunately, he's in a situation where we're going to need him to take more shots because Isaac Okoro will never be that guy. He's just not that guy. And whether Ricky Rubio's missing him or Isaac Okoro's missing him, Ricky Rubio's much more capable of at least dribbling his way into better looks. But he's been abysmal as well from the field over the last few games, facing some very tough defenses. In Golden State, he was 4 for 15, 4 for 12 against the Nets, 5 for 20 last night against the Suns. He's contributing in other ways. I mean, he's sort of filling the stat sheet in this role he has as now our, well, our second guard. But they improve their efficiency just a little bit, and we win these games. Because Darius Garland has looked incredible. I don't think there's any Cavs fan who comes away from this stretch, regardless of whether we've lost five games in a row or whether we won all five, feeling like Darius Garland, Evan Mobley, and Jared Allen haven't proven already in this season that they're a long-term fixture at their respective positions for this Cleveland Cavalier team. Now that brings us to another man. I'm just going to count Saturday as a win, by the way. I'm going to assume that we're going to beat the Magic. My next podcast will probably be after a one-game winning streak is in place. And I'm knocking on wood, but that is what I'm hopeful for. Now let's touch on this Colin Sexton news, because while it's been out there for a while, We're coming to the realization that we'll be without him for the remainder of the season, and it should be settling in now with everybody that this squad that we're seeing out there now, minus Evan Mobley, is essentially who we have to go to war with and try to make the playoffs with. I like the Cavs' chances, despite this recent stretch, because this was a brutal scheduling stretch. But beyond that, they're in all of these games against the elite of the elite. So we get to a slightly easier place in the schedule, And I truly do believe that the Cavs, by the end of the season, can definitely be hovering anywhere from six to nine in the standings and find themselves in a playoff situation. I think they will be firmly entrenched at the end of the year. And I'm saying that assuming that we stay mostly healthy because clearly that's been an issue with the Cavs. But seeing Kevin Love come back, play excellent. The other guy that deserves a lot of praise for last night is Jetty Osmond. He was absolutely unbelievable, and he's continued to be unbelievable over the course of the season. Last last night against the Suns, Osman went for 23 points. He shot 5 of 7 from three-point land, and he shot 60% from the floor. He was 9 of 15, and the display he put on in the fourth quarter was absolutely incredible. Played some of the best basketball of, of the game late in the game, in trying to steal a Cavs victory away from the Suns, despite what happened with the officials. In the fourth quarter alone, Osmond scored 12 of his points. He was 5 for 9 from the floor. 
And that's probably what we can expect to see to some degree from Osman because with Sexton out of the lineup, he is right now, at least based on this season, he's our second most reliable scoring threat from the perimeter. Unfortunately, Rubio can score in doses, but it's never going to be efficiently. Whereas Osman this year has come out playing inspired, increasing his field goal percentage and his three-point percentage. As it stands right now, he's averaging 49% from the floor and 44% from three. That is a massive improvement over the previous season where he played some of his worst basketball. I mean, he's jumped his field goal percentage over 10%. And that's not just field goal percentage. That's also his three-point percentage. He went from 31% to 44% from three-point land, and he went from 37% to 49% from the floor. That's unheard of. While decreasing his turnovers, while increasing his scoring, and while doing it with three to four less minutes per game. He's only playing 22 minutes a game right now. Over the last several seasons, this is a guy who's pushed closer to 25 to 30 minutes a game, but we've asked less of him, and he's excelled in that role. The same can be said of Kevin Love. Now, we didn't have much in the way of expectations for Kevin Love coming into this season. In fact, a lot of people were just clamoring for the buyout. But Kevin Love not only has been a positive influence in the locker room, but he's been an excellent contributor on the court. His role has diminished. He's down to simply 21 minutes a game, but he's averaging 11 points and 8 rebounds in those 11 games. This is a guy who averaged 12 points and 7 rebounds last year in far more minutes in games where he started every one of them. He has not started a single game this year, and he is finding ways to contribute. I've been exceptionally pleased with the bench, with Rubio, with Kevin Love, with Osman. While I do think Rubio could stand to be a little more efficient, for everything else that he contributes, I can deal with that not being a perfect situation. He's not meant to be this complete player. We know what we have in him. But there is zero doubt that he's a far better rotation player to be rolling out and giving minutes to than Della Vadova. So I think you have to feel good about that because while we're not getting Sexton back, Garland has made a huge leap. Rubio's a big-time contributor. Osman is night and day different. Love looks like he's actually content to be in the situation he's in. And we haven't even touched on Markkinen who's just another weapon that the Cavs have. In game-to-game, his contributions are somewhat inconsistent, but if he gets into a stretch where he strings together some efficient, high-performance basketball on the offensive end, then we can be even better. Now, Okoro, I don't spend a lot of time on Okoro on this podcast. I'm thankful he's healthy. That's what I'll say. I've not been wonderfully pleased with his offensive development. I don't think he's much of a reliable threat there, and there's times where I feel like guys sag so much off of him, they dare him to drive. He has basically one move going to the rim, which is drive right, drop your shoulder into the guy, hope they don't call an offensive foul, and then with the space created, because he is strong, he's a big frame for a guy his size, and he is able to create some space if the refs allow him to do it, try to put it in off the backboard. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. In general, I don't think he has the respect of the officials, so I think any game predicated on forcing contact, it's not going to get you extra points at the line. 
you just have to hope that he puts those buckets in. Now, are there, there are moments in transition or on back cuts where he makes a play here and there where I think, okay, this is an aggressive, assertive Okoro who's playing to his strengths, but he's still just a woeful outside shooter. And in my view, Osman is past him and lapped him. And, and truthfully, there's people clamoring for Osman to be started. I don't want to do that. I don't want to screw up his momentum. Because right now, the level of efficiency he's playing with, I don't think you screw with that. It's not about counting numbers for Osman. We have plenty of guys who can create offense in their roles on this team. But if Osman continues to produce at that level, it is such a valuable weapon to have off the bench. Because Okoro this season is still, he's shooting below 20% from three-point land. He's gotten noticeably worse. While Okoro has increased his three-point percentage by nearly 10%, Okoro, uh, did I say Okoro? I meant Osman. While Osman has increased both his field goal and three-point percentage by nearly 10%, Okoro has gotten worse. His three-point percentage has dipped nearly 10%. And he is now averaging even less in the way of scoring. Seven and a half points a game. Four and a half rebounds. I mean, he's there for defense, so I'm not going to get fixated on the offensive end. But to the people clamoring for him to play a larger role or become the secondary ball handler, I think I've seen enough in this year and a half to know that if he ever arrives at that point, it is a long way away. That was not going to be year two of Coro. He's not ready for that. Nor should he be that guy, because Osman is just far more capable of being that, well, when you're in a pinch, he can create a pick-and-roll type situation, or he can isolate a guy on a dribble and try to create his own look. Osman can occasionally do that. And with the way that he's shooting the three-point ball right now, he's giving himself a lot better angle to make those drives because people have to play up on him. Okoro, they're just going to sag off and give him a, a head of steam and let him run at them, take those shoulders, and hope that they get some charge whistles called in their favor. And Okoro has been basically invisible on the offensive end. Now, people have talked about Colin Sexton. I think I want to transition at this point. We've talked a lot about the on-court product. You know where I stand on that. I'm extremely thankful for Osman after yesterday and after the early season he's put forward so far. I'm thankful that Kevin Love has not been a distraction. He's been a positive force. I'm thankful for Jared Allen. I was wrong to have any trepidation about his contract because with and without Evan Mobley, Jared Allen is playing about as good as you can play from the center position in the NBA. Do I think he'll make the All-Star game? No, I don't. But I think that he'll be right there amongst the centers who could. I just don't think we're going to see a lot of centers represented. And I think it will be difficult for him to, I mean, he's not going to win the fan vote. So he'd have to get on as a reserve. And there's just a lot of talent in the NBA. But I would be ecstatic if the Fro was representing the Cavs in Cleveland. Because he's probably their best shot at this point. Evan Mobley's not going to make the All-Star game. Darius Garland, not going to make the All-Star game. Not because he's not playing excellent basketball, but guard is exceptionally deep in this league. And, you know, we see what he does, but I almost think that his impact goes beyond the numbers at this point. While he's, he's been very good, his numbers have increased and he's gotten better, he certainly is still a guy putting up reasonable stats at this point in the sense that, you know, to make the All-Star game, a lot of times you have to hover around 25 points per game. And Darius Garland is not in that place yet. He's, he's increased his numbers modestly. 18 and 7, that's good. But at the beginning of the season, his percentages were even better, and they have fallen off somewhat 
from the three-point line and even from the field. I mean, he, he finished last season, he finished 45, 40, 85. And right now he's just below 45%. His, his three-point percentage has regressed 5% and he's about the same from the free throw line. So numerically speaking, if someone was to look at that and try to make the case for Darius Garland making the all-star game, they would be hard pressed to do so. Now, if the Cleveland goes on a big winning streak and he's at the focal point of that, well then that could change. But right now, Allen is definitely the one in the best position to potentially make the all-star game. It will be difficult though, because Embiid is going to run away with the fan vote in terms of centers in the East. And he'll have to make it on the merits of his game. And there is a lot of talented basketball players as wings and guards and forwards who could fill those positions. So we'll just have to see on that. But that brings us to Colin Sexton. One of the other subjects I wanted to touch on today on this Thanksgiving Day edition of the Fear the Fro podcast. Follow at Fear the Fro pod. Like and subscribe. Colin Sexton out for the year, which we now know. Last night, we got a chance to see DeAndre Ayton. In recent, well, the last couple weeks, we found out that Michael Porter Jr., who signed a $207 million extension, over $145 million of that guaranteed, he now looks like he potentially could miss the rest of the year. He's out indefinitely with the same back issues that have plagued him over the course of his career. He had procedures done in college. It cut off his freshman campaign, caused him to slide in the draft, at which point the Nuggets took him at 13. He missed his entire rookie season, rehabbing that same back issue. And now, well, he's laid up again. Seeing a specialist, hoping to get a second opinion to find out if he can just wait this out and rest and recover that way, or if he's going to have to do another procedure. And if it goes that procedure route, the Nuggets will have just given a max extension to a guy who may not even have a future with the team. Now, that is the absolute doomsday scenario I laid out. He could just miss a huge portion of this year, come back, look fantastic. Then, okay, you lost a season of Jokic's prime. It's unfortunate, but if there's a time to lose it, I suppose it would be in concurrence to when Jamal Murray is out of the lineup. But it does make you look at this situation playing out with Colin Sexton, where he has suffered a season-ending injury, and say, well, it could be worse. We could be in the situation the Nuggets are in, where they have committed to Porter Jr. as a one of their focal points, one of their three main pieces, who's getting max money to be there long-term and have his future health and career in doubt. We are not in that situation with Sexton. Sexton, by all accounts, will bounce back from this injury, and people don't expect it to impact his play long-term. It is, well, kind of the first major injury he suffered since being here in the NBA, but it's coming a time, obviously, where he's trying to get paid. And there's multiple groups of fans in this Cavs community, as in any community. There are people who feel that Colin Sexton is too one-dimensional and should not be a focal point through which the Cavs build around. I'm not in that camp. Do I think his primary skill is scoring? Absolutely. But do I think we need his primary skill? Absolutely. Look at how inefficient Rubio has been. Look at how much Darius Garland is struggling at the moment to string together, you know, elite efficiency. There is a place for Colin Sexton as a guy to take the pressure off of those other guys, which will hopefully open things up for them so that they can be more impactful offensive contributors in their own right. But right now, Okoro is not a guy 
that you can rely on to take the pressure off of Sexton and Garland. Sorry, not Sexton. Rubio and Garland to the point where their looks are going to be easy. Their looks are not going to be easy. They're going to have to create everything they get through pick and roll, through high screens and pull-up threes. And in Rubio's case, it is amazing the amount of those drifting three-pointers that he hits from outside. But as it, as it relates to Sexton, there are people who feel bad for Colin Sexton in this situation because he's injured during a year where he's trying to get paid and there's fears that that's going to cause him to not be able to get the money that he should he so justly deserves. Colin Sexton deserves to be paid, and he will be paid. I think you need to put it out of your mind that somehow this impacts his long-term outlook. This is not the type of injury that should prevent him from being paid his market value. What was always going to prevent Colin Sexton from being paid his true market value was restricted free agency. Because teams not only are going to have to commit to a number that is substantially above what the Cavaliers are willing to pay to keep him. And don't kid yourself. The Cavaliers may not think that he's worth whatever his agents are demanding, but they understand that if they let him walk away, they don't get to replace Colin Sexton. The only way they recoup any value from Colin Sexton is either A, on their team as a contributing player, or B, in some sort of sign-and-trade next summer. And the problem with sign-and-trades for restricted free agents is not only do you generally have to pay more than a team would be willing to pay to match, so somebody is going to have to give Colin Sexton considerably more money than the Cavaliers feel he's worth so that they would be willing to walk away, but they'll have to give up an asset to do it. It's like being screwed twice on the other end. And you would have to really, really, really love Colin Sexton to justify that kind of risk. So it was never the injury that was going to suppress Colin Sexton's market value. It was the restricted free agency status. And in my opinion, what the Cavs are doing and what the Suns are doing and saying, listen, we're willing to pay you. This is what we feel you're worth. We're not mad at you if you don't take it. If you want to go out and shop it, and try to find somebody to give you a bigger offer sheet, That's those are your rights. That's how the system's set up. And if you can find somebody who is willing to pay you more than we're willing to pay you, well, then we'll figure something out at that point. Whether it be a sign and trade, or whether we outright let you walk because we simply won't pay you that much money. And if that's the case, Colin Sexton wins. He gets what he wants. It only takes one offer to do it. It has to be one very large offer, but it only takes one person. However, I think the realistic outcome all along has been Colin Sexton will hit restricted free agency. Teams will consider what they think he's worth. And while there may be some who flirt with an offer sheet, I don't expect anyone to come at him with an offer sheet so large that the Cavs don't pay it. Because we've seen other rookies in his class and what the market has kind of dictated their worth. Mikhail Bridges, $22.5 million, average annual value. Jaron Jackson Jr., $25 million, average annual value. Colin Sexton could fall anywhere from $20 to $25 million a season. But I think what we've seen, and at least the Nuggets are seeing it now, is that you have to be a truly transcendent player to get that $207 million. And certainly, nobody's going to take that risk with Colin Sexton. It just won't happen. He's not on the level of guys like Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Luka Doncic, and Trey Young. Those are players who people consider, well, much better. Two-way players, 
or just elite offensive talent, guys who can unlock the potential of people around them in a way where Colin Sexton can be an elite efficiency scoring option, but he's not necessarily on that level where you're building around him. You're plugging him in amongst other talented players, and that's his role here in Cleveland. That's what it should be. We should not need to go back to a situation where the usage Colin Sexton gets dictates that he has to score 25-5-5. I don't want that. I want wins. And the winning basketball, I think, is one where we have far more balance. And that's not discrediting Colin. It's, it's great to know he's capable of that. But we're not going to pile up any type of victories. We're not going to get to the playoffs if we ask him to do that every single night. We need to take advantage of his skills on the offensive end to open things up for other people. And that doesn't just come by passing to other people. Sometimes that just comes through the gravity that your existence on the court creates. Okoro does not have that. Colin Sexton has that. And yeah, Okoro's a much better defender, but truthfully, by the end of this season, when Mobley and Allen and Markinen and Garland and all these guys are out there, I think what we're going to find is this front court that we've assembled with Allen and Mobley, it covers up a massive amount of mistakes that can be made in the backcourt. We've been one of the best defenses over the course of this early season, and that's with all this fluctuation that we've had in terms of health and roster availability. So I think the focal point that was Isaac Okoro last year when the draft rolled around is needing this defensive stopper. It's become less important now. His development has become less important now. While, of course, I root for it, I don't think it's as critical. If he ends up being a miss, so be it. With the way Osman is playing right now, I may not even notice long term. I'd be bummed because it was a fifth overall pick. But in general, that draft, it hasn't blown me away to the point where I'm just reeling from what may be just sort of a wasted early lottery pick. Regardless, though, Colin Sexton is going to remain a Cavalier. We're going to reach restricted free agency next summer. And what's going to happen is that while there may be people who are willing to pay a couple million more a year, they're not going to be willing to do that and give a pick. And the Cavs will match anything that's remotely reasonable. It may be slightly more than they offered him, but they'll be willing to pay it so long as their hand is forced by another team. There's no reason to bet against yourself. And for the people who are upset the Cavs have not paid Colin Sexton yet, you got to ask yourself, are you hoping for the Cavs to be competitive or are you just a Colin Sexton fan? Because look at what happened with the Nuggets. The last thing the Cavs need to do is be overly generous just because of what Colin Sexton has done in his past few seasons with the Cavs. He was being paid handsomely to do that. It's the same mentality people had with Love where, oh, they won a championship. We had to give him a max. No, we didn't. There's a difference between appreciating a player's contributions and managing your cap intelligently. And some people see it as a sign of disrespect that the Cavs aren't willing to overpay anyone who's just willing to stay on their roster. That's a loser mentality, in my opinion. You have to make smart basketball decisions all the time. Now, I question the Cavs' decisions with Jared Allen. I thought they sort of bit against themselves. The fact that he made $20 million when the next best center on the market made almost 10 million less a season, 9 million less a season. I thought that was sort of a reach, but for a 23 year old, 24 year old who's doing 15 and 10 or whatever he's doing right now, he's proven to be well worth that. 
So I'm thankful for Jared Allen. I'm extremely thankful for Evan Mobley. We really even haven't touched on him because he's been injured. But of course, front runner for the rookie of the year. And when he comes back, he was really starting to get into the rhythm before he went down with that elbow injury. So I think between Allen, Mobley, and Garland, whether we finish in the playoffs or not, we're going to get an extended look at how those three players play in terms of winning basketball decisions and complementary pieces. And to have those three guys, not to mention the good role play we're getting from Rubio, Osman, Love, you have to feel tremendously better this Thanksgiving than we did a year ago, despite the fact that the Cavs did come out of the gate pretty hot one calendar year ago, but it fell apart very quickly. And it certainly didn't feel as sustainable as this success has been. Because the Cavs, they've lost five in a row, but they've looked great doing it. So I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that the Cavs are healthy again. I'm thankful that they retained Allen. I'm thankful that we ended up with a third pick and we got Mobley as opposed to Jalen Green. And I hopefully will feel that way several years from now, even after Jalen Green becomes whatever he's going to become because Mobley has looked tremendous. And I'm thankful for the Ricky Rubio trade. Kobe Altman deserves credit. J.B. Bickerstaff deserves credit. I think that he's, he's coached excellently. The way that he's used the role, guys, I think a lot of times when you look at what you get from the bench, that to me is the most direct correlation to the success of the head coach, to how I feel about the head coach. If you're getting contributions from the guys who you don't have to consistently rely upon, that's when I start to feel like, well, you've built a real, real team culture here. And I feel like J.B. Bickerstaff is picking up some momentum in the early part of the season. And of course, any coach... They're going to win and they're going to lose based on the talent on their squad. But I've loved what Bickerstaff has done. I love that he's trying to get respect from the officials. I don't know when it's going to come. The Cavs are a young team. It takes time. But my hope is that with enough attention, I mean, because if you look at Twitter, it wasn't just Cavs fans. People were outraged last night at the officiating, not just in the Cavs game. I mean, that got a lot of attention, but also in the Timberwolves game. They got a charge on an insane Anthony Edwards dunk that should have never been called a charge. Those are the types of things that need to happen to young teams and young players for them truly to start getting favorable whistles. Because right now, it's not happening to the Cavs. Garland deserves more respect. Rubio, albeit being an older guy, not a young player, I mean, he definitely deserves more respect, but the rest must just not like him because he does whine a lot. I will give him that. But he whines because it's not often that you take a knee right into the center of your chest where nobody cares. And those refs certainly didn't. So have a great Thanksgiving. I'm not going to get into much further here, but I just wanted a follow-up podcast before what will be a crushing defeat of the Orlando Magic this weekend. Happy Thanksgiving. I'm Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports Radio. This is a special Thanksgiving Day edition of the Fear the Fro podcast. Thank you all for listening, and thank you for joining me for this uh, new endeavor that I've uh, started here this year. Go Cavs. Okay, that's enough. Stop it! This has been another Fear the Fro. It's over. Podcast. That was pathetic. If you enjoyed what you heard today, put it on the highlight reel. Please consider subscribing. Check out FroPod.com for more Cavaliers and NBA coverage. That's what's on display here.